Hello and welcome to Psychology in Seattle. I'm your host, Kirk Honda, licensed therapist. A little reminder again that our shiny new website is up and running, so please check it out, particularly the Support Us page. You can also email us at contact at psychologyinseattle.com. That's contact at psychologyinseattle.com. We always love hearing from our listeners. We have a special guest back on the show today. Please introduce yourself. Hey, I'm Joseph Schaub. Nice to see you again, Kirk. I met Joe 16 years ago. He was an instructor at Antioch University when I I was getting my master's. He was teaching a divorce mediation course. He's a lawyer and a therapist in Seattle. So I was flipping through the fall 2012 edition of the Washington Association for Marriage and Family Therapy newsletter, and I read a fascinating article about Tarasov. At the end of it, I realized it was written by my friend, Joe. So I asked him to come on the podcast and tell us about it. Please illuminate us about Tarasov. I guess the first thing I'd say, as I say to in my trainings, that uh, the first thing you need to know is chicken Tarasov is an incredible meal yeah you have to have the right amount of paprika mm-hmm. a little bit of tomato sauce it's phenomenal yeah yeah kind of have as a, like a, a danger to it kind, oh, of, kind of a murderous oh, danger that's right and if it if it gets so intense that it's murderous you need to warn the person you're feeding it to that's right you okay. got to tell them in advance that's exactly right or else or call the police here's why Tarasov was particularly interesting to me because Tarasov is a California case I was a lawyer in California from 74 until I came here in uh, 95 And by the way, if anybody wants to know whether it's fun to take a bar exam and then practice 20 years and then move to another state and then take another bar exam, and if they ever wonder, well, is that a fun experience? I'm going to tell you right now the answer is no. So That was a surprise. I thought you were going to say yes to that. Yeah, I know. So listen, really threw me for a loop there. Well, here's the deal is that uh, I don't know if who wants to be a millionaire is going to ever come back to TV. But if they do, and the question is, is taking a bar exam 20 years after the first time you take it, and there's four choices, and one of the choices is absolutely not. Final answer. Yeah, final answer. Don't get a phone a friend. Don't waste your phone a friend on that, okay? <laughs> so, you know, what people may not appreciate about the California courts is that the Supreme Court of the state of California back in the, you know, certainly the 60s and 70s was considered the leading court of all the state courts in the country. Mm. When the Washington Supreme Court issues a ruling and says X, that applies to the entire state of Washington. But the minute you cross the border into Idaho or into Oregon, It doesn't apply anymore. The thing that was so fascinating about California, California had a Supreme Court justice named Roger Traynor. And Traynor was on the bench, I don't know, in the 50s, I guess, into the 60s. And Roger Traynor is considered to be one of the greatest judges, certainly in the 20th century in the country. And there were so many legal principles that were initiated by the trainer court in California. In the early 70s, this young woman named Tatiana Tarasov was a student at the University of California. There was an international student. He was, his name sounded like he was probably Indian or Pakistani. You know, his name was something like Ponjadit Podar. See, he had become obsessed with her and he'd made statements that were threatening to her. And she was traveling in South America at the time. 
he made statements to the therapists at the University of California. They called the police and they said, wow, this guy was saying these threatening things about this woman. And the police brought him in and sat him down and asked him questions about. And he said, you know, he came across as fine to them. He promised he would stay away from her. They let him go. Nobody told her family or her what was going on. When she got back from her trip, he became friendly with her brother, insinuated himself into her life, and one day or night he came to her apartment and stabbed her and killed her. When her family found out that he had made threatening statements to the doctors at Cal, they sued the University of California said, you should have let us know. And while I've never talked to anybody or read anything about how they must have felt at the University of California, my guess is, is that the doctors at UC and their lawyers must have felt very comfortable with the idea of possible liability. First of all, there's confidentiality. Therapists have a duty of confidentiality. And there was nothing at the time that would suggest that they needed to provide to, to breach confidentiality in a situation like that. But they did because they told the police. And that's the second thing. They said, even if there was no confidentiality, we talked to the police. We talked to somebody. They must have felt that there was no reasonable basis for finding them liable. And in fact, an argument certainly could have been made that they either did not have an obligation to tell anybody but if they did have any obligation, they fulfilled that obligation by talking to the police. Well, the Supreme Court of the state of California said no, that in fact, they needed to take all reasonable efforts to try to protect Tatiana, which they said could have included, didn't necessarily, but could have included warning her or her family. And they said that that's not that the Supreme Court said, well, they were liable they were bad, because that's not what Supreme Courts do. They said, no, they could be liable if a jury decided that they did not take reasonable efforts to protect Tatiana. So what happens in these cases is that they send it, you know, they send it back down. They reverse it. A year or two, something like that later, the, the legislature of California passed a law that was basically a Tarasoff law, and it said that therapists in California are immune from liability for injuries caused by a client when the therapist has a reasonable basis to believe that there's an imminent threat of harm to the client, and they are immune from liability, meaning that they essentially can't be sued. If, they, if they're if they sued, the case is thrown out. There's just, they can't be sued. That's what immunity means. If they do two things, if they, one, contact the law enforcement and warn law enforcement, and two, take all reasonable efforts to contact and warn the intended victim, make sure the intended victim is warned. Hmm. Before the law was passed, therapists said, like, how do we know whether we're liable or not? I mean, this is, I mean, it's not, clear. You have to make reasonable efforts. What does that mean? What should we do? And, you know, all therapists struggle with the damage to the relationship by breaching confidentiality. And, you know, therapists, you know, you talk therapists all, all the time that, that have found their relationship with clients 
ruptured irreparably by them having to preach confidentiality to to report suspected child abuse, right? And the same thing is with this sort of Tarasov thing. Well, that's what happened in California. They passed the law. But because the California Supreme Court, the Supreme Court of California can issue a ruling that all of a sudden said therapists are, you know, potentially could be liable, doesn't have anything to do with therapists in Washington or Missouri or Florida. It's just California. Mm -hmm. But if a court like the court of California at the time is so well respected among the courts in the country and it's respected because the opinions and decisions they write are well reasoned or well thought out, makes sense, then what often happens is is that the court in Florida will have a similar case come before them and they will actually reference like a California case like Tarasov. So did Washington and other states pass similar laws or are we just follow is Washington just following California's what law? Ha- what happened in Washington? Well, Washington did not pass a Tarasov-like law. But what happened was in the 1980s, a Supreme Court decision came down and... Washington Supreme Court? Yes, Washington Supreme Court. And I just don't recall the name of the case right now. I should. I knew I was going to talk about it today. But but anyway, here's the deal that uh, it was a case in which a guy was hospitalized at Western State Hospital because he had PCP, angel dust, uh, psychosis. He had been using a lot of angel dust. And his brother walked in on him. And he was lying on his bed in a pool of blood, having taken a knife and cut off one of his testicles when he was high on PCP. So they um, uh, they hospitalized him. Uh, it makes sense, right? So, yeah. Okay. So they he was there for a period of time, and you know there are involuntary uh, you know involuntary hospitalization laws in Washington and other states, and it lasts for you know seventy two hours or a prescribed period of time, and then. If for any reason the treaters want to keep them hospitalized against their will for a longer period of time, you actually have to initiate a mental health proceeding and go in front of a decision maker, a court, mental health court, and get an order that keeps a person hospitalized. I mean, makes sense. If somebody wanted to hospitalize you or me right now and they come up with some reason that you know that they were scared they were threatened and then someone believes that that's enough to hospitalize us and it's like you and me as we're sitting here right now and we're going oh my god what is this like the russian gulag i mean how long am i going to be here this is horrible you get a chance to have a hearing in front of a court mm-hmm. um but what happened was after the prescribed period of time was up this guy was just let go. They didn't try to keep him. Despite the fact that shortly before they let him, they released him, he was doing like figure eights or wheelies or whatever around the parking lot of the hospital in the car, and they let him go. And shortly after that, he had an automobile accident while he was high on PCP with a woman. He just blasted her in a intersection, and she was severely injured. And when she found that, you know, you know, she discovered that he had been in Western and they had let him out, and he had been in there for PCP-related, you know, symptoms and psychosis and all, and they let him out. She sued. She sued the uh, state and said. 
you had an obligation to protect me. And, you know, one of the problems with all of these Tarasov kinds of, uh, of rulings is, A, who are we protecting? And B, how do we do it? Um, there was, for example, a case in California that followed Tarasov in which a young guy, you know, was incarcerated and he was in you know, he was he was in prison for you know his time, and when it was and it was time to release him, they were going to release him. There was no way of keeping him, and he made a comment to someone releasing him that he was going to harm or kill a child in his neighborhood. They released him, and he in fact killed a girl in the neighborhood. And when her parents found out that he had made that disclosure before he was released, they sued the state. But the court said threw it out. They said, well, "How can the state be liable?" What what could they have done? They couldn't have kept him incarcerated because his time was up. Who could they have warned? What were they going to do? Were they going to? I mean, is there an obligation on the state to post things on the you know on the uh, telephone poles or you know all over a neighborhood where he lives? I mean, what's the, the idea of Tarasov was that there was a reasonably identifiable victim, and if there's no reasonably identifiable victim, like. Well, what's the obligation? And it wouldn't be that hard to fulfill a reasonable notification to that person. Well, right. But if there's no reasonably identifiable victim, who are you going to warn? What are right. you going to do? So how did the case end in Washington? Uh, well, the case in Washington ended with the Supreme Court saying that the doctors at, the, at Western owed a general obligation to take reasonable steps to protect the public from from harm that could be caused by this guy, so they found that this that the state was 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 responsible. Now, meaning meaning that the state should have done what exactly? Um, well, at the very least, I think the state should have the doctors at the hospital should have sought to continue at least brought to court to try to keep them there because they didn't even try to keep him there. So but, it, it just it made the rules of imminent danger to other people more, I don't know, strict or something. Because those rules were already there, right, in terms of if a professional deems a client to be uh, at risk of harming themselves or other people, then, then they move to hospitalize. But, but there's no liability. Oh, there's before, no liability. Before this case, there was no liability for failing but to do that. But now there is liability. Under this case, there was liability for right. failing to do that. But again, it's not really a Tarasov situation. And there were no cases that were specifically uh, Tarasov right. cases. In the, in, in the article, you said that Washington ruling where the guy on PCP injured the woman it's unclear as to whether or not a future case would rule either way. But, but with Tarasov, it, it's, it's much more clear. Right? Well, the thing about Tarasov was it was someone disclosing to a therapist that they intended to injure or harm a specific person. Right. But under this case, it was like this guy was nuts and they kept they, they kept they they'd let him get out of Western instead of trying to keep him there. So there's a certain level of risk that they might have determined that he might go out and use drugs and he might hurt somebody. And, the re and they determined that the reasonable action on the part of the state was to attempt to keep him hospitalized if he still was clearly a risk uh, to the public. And this guy was. It wasn't a Tarasov kind of case about someone disclosing to a therapist, but it is as close as we get to Tarasov in this particular jurisdiction. So, so if a client of mine or yours is generally at risk, seemingly, of harming someone in the world due to drug addiction or psychosis or something like that, then you and I have an obligation. We might get 
where we might be sued successfully if we don't move towards hospitalization of that person? Well, there's two things I would say to that. that. First of all, Washington passed a statute, not a court decision, but Washington passed a specific statute a few years ago. It's the statute that talks about the limits of confidentiality, the exceptions to confidentiality, like when when a client signs a uh, release and all. And one of the exceptions is if the client poses a risk of harm to others, okay, that statute says you can disclose. So if you feel the, that the your client is going to pose a risk to others, you can disclose. You do not have to maintain confidentiality. So the first part of that statute is not a Tarasoff thing because it's not an obligation. There's no affirmative obligation. It just says you can. If you want to? Yes. This is when the law starts to piss me off because it's so unclear. No, like as, well, like as, as I'm talking more with you, and of course, I'm blaming you for it, Joe, completely. I take responsibility for yeah. it. I thought our conversation would make me more sure about what we're supposed to do, and I was hoping to pass that along to, to the listeners. But as we're talking, I'm thinking... This is even making it more complicated because, but I'm, but I know that the law is much more squishy and much more up to the individual case and the individuals that are making a decision about that case than is perhaps thought of normally. Oh, let me help you out. Actually, it's not, it's not as bad as you say it is. Okay. Okay. So let's walk through it. Okay. Step number one. Yeah. In other states, in a, in a state like, uh, in a state like uh, California, Tarasov imposes an affirmative obligation, you absolutely have to warn if the client presents an imminent risk of harm to other to, to a, a particular person. To a reasonably identifiable person. So okay. the first step is there's a difference between you can do this and you have to do this. So for example, in Washington, as in many jurisdictions, if a client discloses something to you that leads you to believe that there has been child abuse that has occurred, you have an obligation to report. We have an obligation of confidentiality. So there are some situations where you have an affirmative obligation you have to disclose. And those are just, you know, those are your, um, the two major ones that come to my mind are your abuse situations, your child abuse or, you know, elder or dependent adult abuse. And then in a Tarasov situation, the, the disclosure of, by a client of an imminent risk to a reasonably identifiable person. And that applies to people in Washington as no, well. No, hold on. Slow down. No, oh. no. Okay. So here's the deal is that that – so that's the first thing, and that's what Tarasov does. Then in, Cal, then in Washington, there was a case that came down that was a little more general. wasn't specifically like a Tarasov thing, and there certainly wasn't a Tarasov-type statute that said, well, if – the person discloses to the therapist there's a reasonably identifiable risk that they are immune from any liability and can't even be sued so long as they do this and they do that. All right? And there was no statute like that in Washington. What happened was that, a law, that there was a Supreme Court decision that said that under appropriate circumstances that a healthcare professional can be found liable if they don't take reasonable precautions to protect the public from harm to be caused by 
a client. And the example was somebody who was hospitalized who then had a particular drug issue and they knew it and they knew it wasn't you know, adequately treated, and they let him out into the public, and then he suffered, he, he caused harm because of that. So they could be liable because they did not attempt to protect the public. That was the case. They sort of generally said under certain, certain circumstances, you've got to act to protect. Oh, I know what I was going to say. They didn't say that you had to warn. It wasn't a warning case. It wasn't a duty to warn case. It was a duty to use reasonable efforts to protect case, okay, which is a different kind of standard. You, you know, someone sues you, you go to a court and you say, and they say, you had an obligation to use reasonable efforts to protect and you didn't because you did X, Y, and Z. And you said, oh, I acted reasonably because I had no reason to believe that they were a, da- a danger or I did act to protect them, and you throw it in front of a jury, and a jury either decides that you acted reasonably, and you, under those circumstances, and you would not be liable, or you didn't act reasonably, and you would be liable, but it's a question of fact for a jury to make a decision, but what that one case, what that one Washington case said was that you at least can sue and get in front of a jury and make the argument. My question is, might be based on the fact that I'm just completely ignorant of the law or I'm not understanding this. So Tarasov is often quoted by Washington therapists that said, oh, well, that's a Tarasov thing. Oh, you got to follow Tarasov. But you're saying that there isn't any direct connection between Washington practitioners and Tarasov other than that the courts might look to that as an example. Right. But there's a you're exact that's exactly what I think. Because we don't have a statute in Washington that states one way or the other. Right, and and we don't have a case from Washington that specifically has dealt with a therapist who has failed to warn. Is that because these things aren't often brought to court because therapists aren't often sued in this way? Well, maybe, but it's another thing too, possibly. And that is that there is this statute uh, in Washington that talks about the limitations of confidentiality, the times when a therapist can disclose. Not that they have to, but they will not be liable for disclosing and they won't have their license put in jeopardy by disclosing. If you go to a party tonight and you talk to someone and you say, you know, my client Joe Schaub, you know, and you, you come up with something that I've told you if I'm your client, you know, and you disclose something very private and personal about me, and I find out you did, wow, man, you can kiss your license goodbye, right? Mm-hmm. That's like an incredible violation. Mm-hmm. There are some circumstances, though, where you can disclose, and you don't have to worry about that. One of them is if you have an authorization, but another one under that statute is if the client provides you information that leads you to believe there's a reasonable possibility that they can be a danger to others. So Washington passed this law that's been on the books for a long time that says that while you don't have to disclose if the client says they're going to hurt themselves or somebody, you can. So if you do, you're not going to suffer the risk of being sued. Now, since you can... All right. Since the law clearly says you can, what happens if you don't and a person is is hurt? Well, there's nothing I'm aware of in Washington that specifically says, other than this one case I talked to you about, there's nothing, nothing in Washington that specifically says that a therapist has an affirmative duty like under Tarasoff to do it. 
But that doesn't take away the fact that... You could be sued and successfully. You could be, because you can disclose, you can keep it to yourself, but if under that statute. But if you don't disclose and there's injury, well... Uh, you know, nobody, no therapist I'm aware of has been sued about that. And the truth is, is that I wouldn't want you or me or anyone in Washington listening to this podcast to be the test case for that. I don't want you or me or anyone listening to this podcast to to to, to have a situation where you had a client who gave you a reasonable basis to believe that they were going to hurt somebody. You said, well, I'm not aware, you know, I heard somewhere that there's no obligation to do it. So you don't do anything about it. And then they go out and they harm or kill someone. And you could have done something to prevent that because you clearly are protected under Washington law if you do that. But you choose not to because you say there's no obligation. Someone's killed. How are you going to feel? What's the impact on your client going to be? As you weigh everything, is the obligation of confidentiality and the relationship you have with your client so much more important than the protecting a possible victim of your client's violence? So the final thing I want to say about this is there is an even more interesting piece to this new law that I described because the law says that you can disclose... Okay, you can breach confidentiality. And then there is the sentence at the end of that little section that says, but there is no obligation to do so. So it seems, and I've talked to people about it, and if anybody in Washington has a different read on this, contact Kirk so he can contact me. But from my reading of the statute, it sounds like the legislature in Washington, in Olympia, a few years ago, actually said they were going to pass a statute that was going to say there was no Tarasov obligation. Because what the, statute, what the law now says is that you can warn, but there's no obligation to warn. Okay? So, as you think about what happens in Washington, Tarasov is a California case that said you had an obligation to warn when a client discloses information that would put a specific person at risk. We come to Washington where there is no such either case that is decided by a Supreme Court or a statute that says there's this obligation. We end up with a case that comes up that says that there is a general obligation to act reasonably to protect others from danger that could be that you know about that be caused by a client, but that it just says they got to act reasonably from that one case. From that one case, and then with this general kind of obligation that says you got to generally protect the public, without saying exactly what you do to protect the public, we then have a statute that is passed after that case, long after that case, that says. Therapists can breach confidentiality and not lose their license and not lose their license for breaching confidentiality if they basically warn. But that statute also says there's no obligation. So it results in a statute that says you can and then it specifically says you don't have to. And what I will say to you is that if if you can and you don't, I think you're making a mistake. A mistake morally and ethically, but potentially not legally. I think that's true. 
So you, you're not likely to be sued because of the way the statute reads, but it's a bad idea because you, you might feel horrible for having not taken action to protect someone's life. Right. But there's one more thing that needs to be taken into consideration. And that's it. You know, there's a podcast. This is whoever listens to this podcast. I understand that your subscribers and they're now up to like 150,000 or even like a million. Yeah, let's, let's say a million. Okay. A million. Give or take. A million. Okay. Okay. Well, you know, within that range, okay, having, you know, having a podcast where you're saying, well, if you do this, you're liable. If you don't do this, you're not liable is very tricky. So here's what I would say is that's generally how I understand the law. That's how I talk to people about the law. But there's no one sitting in front of me right now and saying, here's my situation. Exactly. Here's my situation. What do you think? And that's a different situation. That is something where I can give advice and I can say, well, you know, here's kind of how I think about how you ought to handle that. There's no blanket thing. People should not make a decision based on our discussion, whether warned or not. What they should do is, is based on this discussion is two things. Be aware that it's a bit complicated and also confer. Anybody who makes a decision about whether to disclose or not when there are when a client talks about risk anyone who makes the decision to disclose or not without conferring at least with a colleague if not with a lawyer as well is both irresponsible and unethical don't make these decisions on your own and leaving the door wide open to litigation because when you're on the stand and you, you can say that you conferred, it, it bolsters your defense. Right. And if you get on the stand and say, well, listen, I heard a podcast. I mean, you know, and they'll say, was this Kirk Honda's podcast? And they'll say, yeah. And they say, well, that's authoritative. Yeah, that's okay. gold standard. Gold standard. Well, do you have a couple minutes for some for a lightning round of a couple of situations that I might put out in front of you to see what you say? Okay. Okay. So a client comes into my office. Okay. and So is, far, so good. That's a, okay. That's okay. okay. He, he's, he's bipolar. And he is violent with someone he's in conflict with and is incarcerated for a while and is telling me that the guy deserved it and that he's actually really angry at me for having not treated him well enough so that he wouldn't have done this in the first place or something along those lines. Seems volatile, has, hasn't made any threats to anyone, hasn't said, I'm going to go get someone else or, and, and doesn't have a gun, um, doesn't have a lot of history of violence, but seemingly a, a lot of anger and a lot of targeted anger. In this hypothetical situation, let's say he was very violent with someone for no reason and not even that much provoked. The other person could have probably got out of it if they weren't macho as well. You know what I mean? If they were just, just kind of walked away. But there was really no way of knowing if he would do that again. And my normal thinking is, well, there's there's no threat to any particular person. Sure, he's at risk, but really all angry people are at risk that come into my office. So what what would you say to that? If you were knowing him and his situation and all, if you were to try to act in a way to protect the public or him or whatever, what would you do? That's a good, good question. Thank move, you. Move to hospitalize and stabilize and hand it off to someone else to make the determination of risk. Ah, uh, okay. How imminent is the possible violence? Not very imminent. Mm-hmm. It's more of a general risk that it could happen at some time in the next year, that kind of thing. And this is a hypothetical situation. 
Yeah, of course. Are substances uh, involved with this particular guy? No. Okay. That raises the risk, right? Sure. Yeah. Does he have a cat? I don't know. Oh, see, that's important. Yeah. Cats calm people down. That's true. Is his anger focused at a particular person? It was for a time, and then he assaulted him at work, and then it was no longer focused on him. And he didn't have anyone else that he was focused on particularly. Well, the interesting thing about duties to warn, but it's the notion of people wanting to warn somebody who already knows that this person is a risk. And, you know, the reason you warn someone is to protect themselves, protect them. Mm-hmm. Now, if your client comes in and he says, I'm going to go out right now and I'm going to stab them and they've already beaten them up. So they know that they're a risk, but I'm going to go out and stab them. You figure, well, they better know that this guy's coming for them. But I mean, if you, this guy's a general risk to a third party, like a general possible risk, but you don't know when it's going to happen. Well, that person already knows it. Mm-hmm. So what are you going to warn him? You're going to warn him about something you, they already know. Right. And if he comes and he tells you it's happened, he's kind of angry. But your sense is that the anger has somewhat dissipated, right? Yeah. I mean, if this person, I mean, this is a really good hypothetical. I like this. I'm, you really worked hard to put this one together, and I appreciate that. <laughs> um, my initial sense is I'm not sure, like, well, what, I mean, what are you going to do? The only option would be to try to get him hospitalized, and they probably wouldn't because his symptoms weren't high enough. I would think. So the only so the only other thing would be to warn this particular person. I guess, yeah. I mean, what kind of and what kind of relationship do you have with this guy? I mean, is it the kind of relationship that if you went to get him hospitalized, I mean, it sounds to me if he's not acute, I don't know how you hospitalize someone who's not in an acute state. Right. If they did that, you know, half of Washington would be hospitalized. I'd be hospitalized, and you wouldn't even be able to. This, you know, this is actually taking place at Western. Yeah. That's the thing. It's good. You're, you're, it's uh, portable. Well, thanks for coming on the podcast, Joe. This hey, has been Kurt, fascinating. It's been good seeing you. Yeah, thanks a lot, man. I really like your studio. It's really beautiful. I hope the people who have a chance to come in and work with you and talk to you have a chance to see this really beautiful setup you have here. Thanks. It's called Piss One Studios. P-I-S, Piss One, Psychology in Seattle. Anyway, well, that does it for another episode of Psychology in Seattle. Thanks for joining us. Please take care of yourself.